This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today with Matthew Benfield. Uh, I found him on TikTok uh, under the username Theologia Viatorum. Now, I want to just make this this disclaimer right out the bat. Uh, TikTok is um, it's based on an algorithm, so your your results may vary. I'm not necessarily recommending that specific uh, that specific platform, but I've found it to be quite interesting given. Uh, how the the algorithm has decided it knows me and the people that it's putting in front of me. Uh, and so I don't get all of the the viral dances or trends or whatever else. I get people uh, waxing eloquent on theology. And so uh, I'm really interested in the people that come across. And one of them in particular is Theologia Vittorium, Matthew Benfield, uh, who came into the church just this year at Easter uh, and has gone through the consecration to the Sacred Heart on September 2nd, consecration uh, to Jesus through Mary on September 15th. He's just kind of dived right in. But the other thing that I've noticed about uh, Matthew in his in his videos and the ways that he interacts with other people on the platform is a very irenic spirit. There's a quote that I really grabbed a hold of when I first came into the church from St. Teresa of Avila, where she said, if I should say anything that is not in conformity with what is held by the Holy Roman Catholic Church, it will be through ignorance and not through malice. This may be taken as certain, and also that through God's goodness I am and shall always be as I have always been, subject to her, the Church. Uh, and I've seen that kind of borne out in the the work, the videos, the content put out by Matthew, in that he is not afraid to uh, to jump to an opinion and to share that opinion, but he is also very quick to submit himself uh, to the things that he continues to learn after he is converted uh, to the church. You know, oftentimes we think of conversion as this thing that this destination that we go to, and both for myself, for Matthew, and for many others, uh, it, I, I see the fruit of it being viewed, this conversion into the Catholic Church, confirmation into the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. as merely the the initiation, the beginning point of the journey, and not the destination. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us here today. Sure, I'm happy to be here. I'm honored. So, first of all, I'm always intrigued by people who have been involved in ministry and have come into the church. You were a preacher in the Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, what was the initiation, that point of opening your mind to the possibility of conversion? Mm -hmm. And how did that journey bring you to this place where you came into the church this last Easter? Yeah, uh, the the whole thing took about 10 years. Yeah, um, And Normally, I start uh, with a trip that I took to Mexico, but I think um, even before then, uh, before I was ever aware of it, so the first conscious thing that happens is in Mexico, but before then even was um, St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Um, you know, I, I grew up where she was just kind of in the air, you know, even before mm -hmm. I was a Christian and like on radios and sitcoms and things, if someone wanted to point to someone who was considered especially good or holy, they would always mention Mother Teresa. You know, someone would say like, you know, who do you think I am, Mother Teresa? You know, yeah. um, she was just kind of like the pinnacle of human goodness. And um, I was always intrigued by her. 
um, even when I became a member of the Church of Christ, um, for which I later became a preacher. And, you know, even while I thought she was a lost person, I still was like amazed by her goodness. So she was kind of working under the hood without me even knowing it. But <laughs> the first conscious thing that happened was um, I took a mission trip to Mexico um, to convert the people down there. And, you know, insofar as most of them are Catholic, I guess I was going to convert all the Catholics down there, though I didn't frame it that way. Um, but I, I entered my first Catholic uh, church there, and uh, it was the, the the cathedral at San Cristobal de las Casas. And I remember when I stepped across the threshold, it was the first time I had ever felt like I was in a holy space. Hmm. Um, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And, and there was a man like praying the rosary on his knees, and I don't know if I had ever seen a man kneel in prayer ever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just, I was a tourist, you know, I, I came in and I looked around at the building and then I kind of went out the back door. I was in there like three minutes. This is interesting to me because uh, the, the Church of Christ, if I, if I recall correctly, uh, has a view that the, the place where the church gathers to worship is just a building. It's a space and it's, it's meant to be bare and, and to just be functional. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there isn't iconography. There isn't any kind of thing in a church of Christ space where you could say, Hey, this is a, a religious place. Um, and so it's interesting to me that it was the recognition of sacred space that really grabbed your attention because it's yeah. not something that traditionally would be important in a church of Christ tradition. Yeah, it was very uh, unsettling. It kind of threw me off balance. And when I came back from that specific mission trip, I was really upset. And I, uh, in a in a way, I I um I didn't kind of know. I didn't really know what to do. And I eventually I reached out to uh, Peter Kraft. Um, mm. I emailed him because um, you know he's he's a professor at Boston College, so he has to list his email for so his students can find him. And so I emailed right. him. And, um, just said, Hey, I, I, you know, I know you're a convert. Um, he was a, he raised a Calvinist, I think. And so I said, Hey, you know, what, what books did you read? Like what, what helped you? And, uh, you know, he, he said, congratulations on being a seeker was the first thing he said. (laughs) And, uh, and he gave me a few book recommendations. And, but the last thing he said was the thing that I latched onto. He said, um, but in the end it was the church fathers. He said, the more of the fathers you read, the more Catholic you become. And, uh, I was, you know, you don't become a minister for the money. So I was, I was, I was poor. I didn't have too much money to spend on books. So I was like, well, if this is the big thing, that's what I'm doing. So I got a little collection of uh, the church fathers. It was, it it wasn't Jimmy Aikens, the fathers know best, but it was kind of like that. It was like a, uh, like a alphabetical encyclopedic collection of quotes where you could look up a topic, you know? Um, but I didn't know where to start or even what I was looking for. So I, I started just reading cover to cover and I got maybe like 15, 20 pages in and I was like, this is Catholicism. And it was too much for me. It was too much too fast. And yeah. so I, I, I couldn't handle it. So I basically just ignored it. I set it aside. Um, this, this is intriguing to me because you walk into a Catholic space mm-hmm. and, and your initial response is that you were shaken and it's too much for you. And so your first thing is, let me go find one of the most supercharged Catholic philosophers and ask him what made him Catholic so I can get more of this thing that was already too much for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, uh, it 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 doesn't make sense, really, um, <laughs> which is which is often the, what you find when you're encountering yeah. God, right? Um, things don't make sense. Um, around the same time, and I don't recall if this was before or after the email with Peter Craig, but it was around the same time. I and I still don't know what made me decide to do this, but I was at a funeral at the church where I was a minister, and I left the the moment the funeral was ended. I left and I went straight to the Catholic Church. Um, I don't know if those two things are related at all, but I just remember that's what I wrote in my journal, you know, and, uh, I walked in, um, it was open. Uh, I, I didn't know this at the time, but, uh, father Henry was there, um, hearing confession. This was at the St. James Catholic church in Tupelo, Mississippi. And I just went in and sat down at the back and there was a, a deacon who saw me and he kind of came up and he said, you know, can I help you? And I was like, Oh, I, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I just kind of hoping to talk to somebody. And he said, Oh, you know, Father's up there hearing confession and, and, you know, someone's in there right now, but, you know, whenever they come out, you're welcome to go back. And so I waited. And then when it was free, I, I walked in there and, I, you know, there was a little piece of paper explaining how confession goes and so on. And I, I read it when I walked in. I said, mm, I'm not doing that. I was like, I'm not, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not kneeling down. I'm not bless me, Father. I'm not doing any of that stuff. And I kind of peeked around the partition and he yeah. he said, oh, hello. Uh, and I said, <laughs> Hi, I just was hoping to talk to someone. And he said, oh, have a seat. It was very cordial. And uh, we sat down and I was still dressed in my suit, you know, from the funeral. And, and I told him, I said, I'm, I'm a minister down the road here at the church of Christ. And I was real upfront with him. And, uh, you know, I said, Hey, the church of Christ thinks that we're the church that was established by Jesus, not the Catholic church. And so, like I said, I, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't beating around the bush or anything. And, but I told him about what happened to me in Mexico. And, and, and this is when I brought up mother, uh, mother Teresa. And I said, and here's the thing that really bothers me. Um, if Catholics are wrong, and I think that they are very, very wrong. If, if this is all the work of, you know, the enemy, um, then why is mother Teresa so much better than me? Yeah. And, and, and all of my people, right? Like if we're, if we're the true church, then why don't we have people like Mother Teresa? And I and the the thing that I said was it it would seem that I have to believe Satan makes better saints than Jesus. And he sat up and said, "Well, I've never thought about it like that before." And um, you know, he said something from the homily about Mark, and um, and we chatted for a little bit. And and again, this was kind of as far as it went. Yeah. Um, and I continued, you know, like I said, it was just, it was, I eventually backed off. I was, it was, I was so unsettled. Everything was getting tossed around. I had felt like I had no solid ground. So I eventually backed off and, um, and, but I keep reading, you know, and I'm reading like, um, mostly Catholic adjacent, like Anglican, like I'm reading C.S. Lewis. I'm reading N.T. Wright. Um, I do read G.K. Chesterton, who's, who's a Catholic. Um, but uh, I read like orthodoxy, you know, I think that was the only thing I have his, I read for a while. I read everlasting man eventually. Um, so just over the years, I'm just, I keep studying and I'm not pursuing Catholicism. Um, I'm not trying to learn what the Catholic church teaches and I'm not trying to learn if it's true or not. I'm just trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian, you know? Um, eventually I end up back in university and I know that I'm eventually going to have to take a class on church history and theology. And I was very concerned with uh, not doing well. So I, what I would do is I would get the syllabus of my class beforehand. And if like the professor had written a dissertation, I would read his dissertation or her dissertation. Um, 
and I would try to read the textbooks before I even took the class. And so I spent three years reading Church Fathers to prepare for this class that I ended up not actually taking. I had to leave before I could ever get to the class. <laughs> but I was spending all this time, you know, three years. And most of it was, was Greek Fathers, too. Um, and that was, again, a coincidence. Uh, I started with Athanasius uh, on the Incarnation, and I picked it because C.S. Lewis wrote the introduction, and I liked C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a bilingual edition. I had Greek on one side, English on the other. And I liked that because I knew a little bit of Greek. And if I wanted to say, hey, you know, really um, discern uh, or criticize the translation, I, you know, I had the Greek right. text. On this, and I thought all of them would be like that. So I kept getting St. Vladimir's Press, uh, their yeah. popular patristic si- uh, series. Well, they're not all like that. Um, so it, it was a mistaken judgment that I made that made me pursue this particular set of church fathers. And because it is an Orthodox printing press, I'm getting all these Greek fathers. So I read almost exclusively Greek fathers. Um, uh, eventually, I, I did get a you know couple Latin fathers in there, but I'm in a better place now, more stable place. Uh, I, I'm I can hear what the fathers have to say, you know. And um, the 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 story that I was told when I was in preaching school was that there was this almost immediately after the apostles die there begins to be this apostasy. There's this falling away from pure, pristine New Testament Christianity. And by the time you get to the Council of Nicaea, boom, now you have full-blown Catholicism. So I expected, as I read this, to see things creeping in, right? But I read it. Or or to see some some dramatic difference between, you know, early second century and Nicaea. Yeah, right, yes. Oh, there's a difference here. Yeah. Yes. Um. But when I read St. Ignatius of Antioch, who, you know, if you believe the tradition, you know, he's, he's a spiritual son of St. John the Apostle. Right. And that was not a slow fade. St. <laughs> <laughs> Ignatius of Antioch, you know, he's, he says, you know, this is, uh, he, he, I think he censures a, a particular group of people or something. He says, like, they don't believe that the, the, Lord, that the Eucharist is the, the flesh of Jesus. And I was like, right. oh, so Ignatius does. And Ignatius says, you know, uh, don't do anything without the bishop because there is no mm-hmm. church apart from him. He is Jesus to you. Um, he calls the Eucharist the medicine of immortality. I'm like, okay, that's, that, that's big. Like immediately yeah. after St. John the Apostle, that was not a slow fade. Um, and, you know, I read like St. Irenaeus and here he is, threw me for a loop. He's already calling Mary the new Eve. Yeah. And I just, it got to where I can no longer believe that yeah. uh, this such such widespread agreement um was apostasy right. it seemed more like this is what's being passed down from the apostles and um so i had a friend my only catholic friend at the time uh and i would occasionally reach out to her and ask her questions mm-hmm. and she was beginning to ask so when are you going to convert and i said oh that's that's not happening uh, i said i don't do the pope and i don't do mary that's yeah. not you know i'm not doing that um well then about the last year I was in ministry, she would she was still asking the same question. So when are you going to convert? And and I got to where I said, well, you know, I I mean this is my livelihood, you know, this is how I support my family, and and if I if I were to convert, you know, I could no longer do this work uh, as a minister, and I would in essence be impoverishing my family. I didn't feel like that's a decision I could make individually for my family. Mm-hmm. 
And I said, but you know, if, if, if I found myself in a station of life where I was no longer dependent upon my work as a minister to put food on the table, I would probably convert. Yeah. And, um, and I said something like that in October, 2020, and they fired me January, 2021. Yeah. And I remember I was in the meeting while they're firing me. I'm watching the, the words come out of their lips. And I was asking myself, well, Matthew, did you mean what you said? Because if you meant what you said, <laughs> this is it. And I literally left the meeting where they fired me. And I went down three blocks to St. Elizabeth's Catholic Church to talk to Father Emiliano and say, hey, what do I need to, be to become Catholic? And it was still quite a long time before that happened. I was in Lubbock at the time. We ended up leaving Lubbock and coming back to North Carolina. So I ended up not doing RCIA there. Mm -hmm. But that's just a way of saying, like, the moment I was out, I, I kept my word in essence. I had said that's what I was going to do, and that's what I did. Yeah. I'm struck by this uh, this journey because it is highly influenced by the saints. And here we are at, mm -hmm. at All Saints Day. Uh, your, your little motto there on TikTok on a lot of your videos is mm -hmm. saints over scholars, mm -hmm. um, meaning— why don't you break down the meaning of that saints over scholars for us, and then, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. What do you mean so when you say saints over scholars? Well, there, there is a, a, a trend in biblical interpretation and biblical scholarship, I, and, and there, there are a number of books that, that try to um, describe this trend. I think Scott Hahn has one. It's uh, the fall of Scripture and the rise of – I think it's called The Death of Scripture and the Rise of Biblical Studies or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are a couple of books that are doing the same sort of thing. Right. And um, – so what happens is um, there develops like, like a distrust of authority in essence um, uh, of yeah uh, of anyone asserting authority. Uh, so uh, you have to be able to prove almost in a scientific manner um, what you mean. And this is all wrapped up in the enlightenment and the development of the scientific method and so on. Um, and so s slowly but surely faith, um, in, in some circles begins to be seen as an impediment to, uh, biblical interpretation or it somehow infects it because it, it's, it's a bias. And what we want to is, is it, it, like science, um, as best we can to have a quote objective view and to, you know, come to some sort of objective conclusion about what the Bible says. Um, and that's that's kind of the, the, the way that I was taught to think about biblical interpretation. Um, eventually, I just decided that uh, that's – I say I decided. Um, I was reading a bunch of guys that helped me. It wasn't like it was right. my own idea, you know. Um, like James K.A. Smith uh, helped me out here, but most especially Stanley Hauerwas, who, whom I say over and over is my favorite theologian. He has a great book entitled Unleashing Scripture. And that was kind of one that really impacted me. But uh, I, was, I was learning that it is impossible not to have a particular view of Scripture. Everyone has some sort of bias. Um, and also, while I'm reading the Fathers, there is this emphasis in the Fathers. St. Athanasius ends his On the Incarnation this way. And St. Augustine, in his book On Christian Doctrine, also has a section where he talks about this. But both of them agree in this. That in order to interpret the Bible appropriately, you have to be a holy person. Yeah. Um, and then there's this book by uh, Marcus Bachmuel, who, if if I understand, is a Protestant. Uh, a, a lot of Protestants made me Catholic. Um, yeah. 
Uh, Same here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Marcus Bachman has got a book called Seeing the Word, and he talks about the implied reader. And one of the things that he says is that, uh, in essence, that the Gospels were not written by, like, quote, scientific or objective observers, right? They were they, – they are faith documents written for the community of faith. And, uh, you know, also in the early church, like, people just didn't have Bibles proliferated, right? Like, if you heard the Word of God, it was likely in the gathered church, right, being right. read aloud. And so Marcus Bachmuel says the thing that uh, we all cater our speech to our audience, right? Like you, you speak to children differently than you speak to adults, differently than you speak to teenagers, and you speak to scientists differently than you speak to lay people and you know theologians and so on. And so he says, you know, what would the writers of Scripture assume about the people that were hearing what they wrote? And in essence, he says that they are followers of Jesus Christ and that they are situated in a community of faith. Mm-hmm. In essence, um, you you had to have faith in Jesus. Uh, that was assumed by the writer. And if you were not that, if you didn't share those assumptions, then you would come to different conclusions than he intended, all right? Because you, you're starting at a, a different place or coming at it from a different way. And um, so I began to think that you need to be properly formed, uh, not just like intellectually, right? right. Now, you don't just have to know logic and argument and language or whatever. Um, you have to be formed by the rituals and the, the faith, the tradition of the community. Um, they're saying, hey, this is how we live and this is how we see the world. And so you are getting a biased lens. Um but it's shaped and formed with the right, in essence, the right bias, uh, the bias that they intended you to have in the first place. And that's why I say saints over scholars. So scholars in, in my little motto here is representative of that trend of interpretation that we want to get faith out of the, of our hermeneutics. Um, we want to try and approach it from the quote, most objective or scientific way possible. That would be scholars. But I say instead, I think that we ought to approach it uh, from a perspective of faith. And that's where the saints come in. Mm-hmm. And you find um, that so often the um, the people that have amazing influence over the world and that draw people into the church are not necessarily scholars and theologians, they, though they may also be that, right? Like St. Thomas Aquinas right. and St. Augustine. These are scholars and also saints. Um, uh, so so uh, they may be that, but over and over again, you find saints at the center of um, like revolution and renewal. There's, there's a great quote by uh, St. Pope John Paul II it's, uh, that says something like that, that like the saints have always been at the center of every renewal of the church. Or, I'm paraphrasing that. Well, and, and there's this, even exhibited in your own life, as a scholar, the, the scholarly arguments came after you were captured and drawn in by the mm-hmm. sanctity, right? right. So uh, in one of your videos, if I remember it correctly, you were talking about saints over scholars, also from a perspective of not everyone can be a scholar and not mm-hmm. everyone needs to be a scholar. And and I kind of read that in the, the St. Therese of Lisieux little way. Mm-hmm. Yes. perspective that what we need to do, even as we're approaching 
our life, our scriptures or, or whatever else is to, to pursue sanctity mm-hmm. and let the other stuff take care of itself. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the catechism talks about when we interpret scripture, we interpret it through the same Holy spirit that inspired it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we interpret it in union with, with the magisterium in union with the church, which is the, the, the body in the church that has the, the authority to interpret for us and with us. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that we don't read scripture. It just means that as we read it, we hold it up to the the light of the saints. What, what has the church said about this throughout the centuries? And that's why mm-hmm. I love you having gone to the church fathers and reading through those, uh, those documents, mm-hmm. which are, which are eminently available to us today in this world of technology, mm-hmm. whether we're going and getting an old public domain translation or picking up the, the set that you had from popular patristics or CUA's fathers of the church or uh, <clears throat> the um, ancient Christian writer series from, um, from Paulist, or there's even a the great commentary uh, that's a Protestant commentary put together by um, I think he's a Methodist Odin, Thomas Odin uh, on IVP called the ancient Christian commentary yeah. on scripture, which is kind of like a catena uh, of pulling the various sources of the fathers, giving us quotes on the whole scripture. And those are all available to us digitally and, 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 mm-hmm. uh, and in physical books. And we have more access to the fathers today than probably at any other point in time in history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, most of the things that, I mean, I read them the way that I did because I like, you like the introductions and I like the footnotes mm-hmm. and I like hard copy books, but most of the things that I read are available like on like newadvent.com mm-hmm. and, and, and more even than, than what I've read uh, because it's, it's huge. It's expansive and yeah. you know, I only have so much money. So <laughs> Right. And, and time, right. There's, there's, right centuries upon centuries of, of writings available to us that the, the ancient world would have, would have probably wouldn't have killed for because they were holier than we were, but they, they would have really appreciated. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, you were talking about that video that I, that I made, you know, talking about, you know, saints over scholars and that not everyone can be a scholar, but, you know, being a saint is not everyone will be necessarily, but, uh, but that it's at least available. It's possible. Right. Um, and, uh, that was inspired by St. Teresa of Lisieux, whom I love. Um, Mm -hmm. but also I had just got through reading the sayings of the desert fathers and these guys were just, uh, they rarely talk about the study of scripture. Not that it wasn't important. I mean, it comes up and, and, and when you read them, you find them quoting scripture and things like this. So they obviously knew it, but the things that they constantly urge us to are um, prayer and silence, solitude, holiness, fasting, those sorts of things. Well, and the desert fathers and the fathers in general weren't studying scripture. They were meditating on scripture. They were praying scripture. They were marinating in scripture. Mm -hmm. Uh, and not parsing it out like we so often do today. Mm-hmm. And so any one of us can pick up the Bible and pray with it or pick up the liturgy of the hours and pray with the Psalms and sit with it or go to daily mass and sit under those readings and let them wash over you and mm-hmm. and and be infused with the Word of God right. as as a spiritual food and not merely an intellectual pursuit. We're talking today with Matthew Benfield. He's over on TikTok. You can find his username at Theologia Viatorum. We'll put a link to that over on our social media, link to one of the more popular videos there. 
Uh, we're going to continue this conversation right after the break, so don't go anywhere. Uh, join the ongoing conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We are talking today, here's we're approaching the uh, the solemnity of all saints as we recognize our place in the communion of saints. Uh, we recognize those who have gone before us, that great cloud of witness that that spurs us on to live a faithful and holy life. And so we're talking today about one particular person's journey into the Catholic Church as spurred on by the lives of those saints and his efforts to uh, uh, to spread that into the new digital continent. Um, we have an obligation as disciples of Jesus Christ to go into all the world and make disciples. And we do that in different ways as, as given to us by the gifts of the Spirit and the charisms that we live out. Uh, Matthew Benfield is uh, has been a... Um, a preacher in the Churches of Christ, uh, came into the Catholic Church this last Easter, and is continuing to live out that charism of preaching and proclamation, not in a clerical way, but through the life of an engaged follower of Jesus Christ, an engaged disciple. He does that on TikTok, which is a, uh, a platform, a social media platform, if you're not familiar with it, that is not entirely populated by uh, by trends and dances and everything else. There's some actually really interesting, authentic, and and really vulnerable conversations that are going on there. If you uh, if you tell the algorithm the things that you want to see, otherwise you're going to end up with the trends and the dances. And you know where you set your eyes, so the algorithm will send you. Mm-hmm. I think is how it goes. Uh, Matthew, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, I'm honored to be here. So we talked a little bit about your journey into the Catholic Church from the Churches of Christ. Uh, fascinating story. If you missed that, good news. It's all archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Um, and, and then we talked a little bit about this, this idea of saints over scholars. There's a third area that I want to talk to you about, and that is engaging with people who have very different ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a certain mindset that we expect when we go onto social media and we see people disagree, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, guns come out. Let's see who's got the bigger authority. Let's see who can be louder and who can have the more definitive. See, I told you so. Mm-hmm. And then we get over to your TikTok, and it's a very different tenor. There is the, uh, in fact, one, one recently, or at least I saw it recently, you talked about, I used to, um, I used to assume uh, through my through my study, through my understanding, I used to assume the positions of other people and speak for them, mm. but I've decided to no longer speak for other people and let them speak for themselves, specifically people I disagree with. Mm. Let them speak for themselves and then respond to them in a in a in a charitable and open way. So talk to me a little bit about that journey from speaking what you understood for someone. And how you got to the place where you're like, you know what, I am, I'm only going to speak for myself now. I'm not going to speak for anyone else. What was that journey like? 
Yeah. So, you know, you were talking about the TikTok algorithm. Well, you know, when I, when I first got on, I was, I got what most people got, you know, I got cat videos and I got dance trends and things, which, you know, which is fine. Um, eventually, um, because I was, I was doing things for my youth group at the time and I was making these little short, like 60 second devotional talks, you know? Um, and so I started seeing some Christian content, but it was, uh, it was not, uh, very academic, um, yeah. which is, you know, and Christian talk does not always have to be academic. So that's, that's no slight to the stuff that I was seeing. Um, most of it was coming from like high schoolers or maybe like people in, you know, their years of college and whatnot. Um, and, I, but I just wasn't seeing, um, the sort of stuff that, uh, that I would put out. And so I thought, Oh, you know, there's, here's a, a space that I can fill. And so I started, um, doing a bit more academic work and people started coming to me and asking all sorts of questions and, you know, Hey, can you talk about, you know, the Lord's supper and all these different views of the Lord's supper and so on. And people were asking me, you know, what are the difference between like consubstantiation and transubstantiation? And, you know, what's this, yeah. and, you know, predestinate all sorts of different stuff. And, uh, and I, you know, I was really doing my best. Um, I had read like, you know, Luther's uh, large catechism and I'd read like uh, his commentary on Galatians and like uh, the uh, Augsburg confession. And uh, I read um, quite a bit of Calvin, his institutes and whatnot. So, I mean, I had some uh, sources I could go to and, and I was doing my best. Um, anytime I spoke mm -hmm. on behalf of Lutherans or Calvinist or whatever, I always had something to quote. Right. Um, but then the Lutherans and the Calvinists found me <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they said, yeah, that's not right. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Uh, Calvin said X, Y, Z or Luther said X, Y, Z. And they said, yeah, but you have to understand da, da, da. And I said, oh, you know, I, I had no idea. And I began to learn that Luther is not necessarily Lutheranism and Calvin yeah. is not necessarily Calvinism. And then I learned that there are also different sorts of Lutherans and um, uh, different uh, sorts of intellectual children of Calvin, Presbyterians and Baptists and different. And, um, and it, I, I just began to appreciate and I was, I, I was hopefully, please God, I was already headed this way, but I began to appreciate more and more the complexity that exists yeah. in every theological system. Um, uh, not just my own, like I'm not, I'm not the only one that has nuance and, uh, and intellect and you know, reflective, you know, an inner life. Um, and so even though I was doing my best to be charitable, I wasn't even saying, here's why Luther's wrong. I was just saying, here's right. what Luther says, you know, um, even though I was doing my best to be charitable and I was doing my best to research and to be well-studied and to have things to quote, I was still getting it wrong. And I, I just, I don't want to do that. Um, I don't want to misrepresent people. So I, I you know, and it just, eventually it felt like the, the most honest thing to do to make sure I was getting what Lutherans really believe was just to have a Lutheran tell us so. And so my friend, uh, Reverend Adam Sornchai, um, I, we, we did this series recently on, on the, the Lord's Supper. What do we all think about this? Um, it was actually inspired by a friend of mine who's kind of going through her own discernment period. She's trying to figure out where she belongs. And she asks about these differences in the Lord's Supper. And a year or two ago, I would have said, here are the differences. But this time I said, right. well, I'll do you one better. I'll have them tell you. And I got my friends together and said, yeah. I got this little project. What do you think? And they were all like, oh, this is awesome. And so I had each one, Anglican and Methodist and Lutheran and Orthodox and so on, say, 
here's how we view the Eucharist. And that way I didn't have to worry about whether or not uh, I was doing it right because I wasn't doing it. Yeah. Well, and, and even, so you mentioned you had the, the Lutheran and the Methodist, mm-hmm. even for them, it's dangerous because they can say, well, I speak for my little branch of, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Methodism, but I came from the Methodist tradition. And I can tell you there were a, a, a whole spectrum of different views yeah. on the Eucharist, even, even in that specific mm-hmm. place. I think that we often miss this as, uh, as disciples as whether, and not just as Catholics, but as, as disciples, I think we often forget that the first place of evangelism is the place of listening and observing mm-hmm. and paying right. attention to what what that culture is and needs mm-hmm. so that we're not just coming in with a one size fits all oh look what well, I've got your answer for you right. you know Paul even in, in Athens with the speech at the Areopagus on Mars Hill mm-hmm. uh, and he goes up to them and says I perceive that you're a very religious people he first goes and is in kind of the midst of them and soaking in what it is that they're experiencing Mm -hmm. so that then he can provide a contextual answer for them Mm -hmm. from his own experience. Yeah. I'm fond of quoting Paul Tillich where he says, the first duty of love is to listen. And Mm -hmm. Jesus says, you know, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. And so if I'm going to love my friends, uh, I've got to listen to them, listen to what they have to say and not presume that I know their faith better than they do. Uh, we talked about this on the show several months ago, that quote from one of the early philosophers, I think it's Aristotle, but someone's going to tell me that I'm wrong, but the, the, that the, the sign of an educated mind is to entertain an idea without accepting it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is uh, attributed to Aristotle very often. I don't think there's any proof that he actually said it, but he's the guy that gets attached to the quote. We're, 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 I'm going to claim it, right? <laughs> I'm going to, yeah. but, but to say that, it is not, uh, I, I am not doing anything dangerous to allow someone to express themselves. We often think that in order mm-hmm. for me to hold the line of what's right and holy, according to my best understanding of it, I have to hold the line. But the, the, we, we don't make any progress that way. We make right. progress when we listen and understand. And we see this with Aquinas really well, that he was able to List the objections to his position first before yeah. he ever got to his position. Right. Listen to those objections and be able to express those objections oftentimes better than his, right. his opponents could have, could express it mm-hmm. so that they would recognize their argument, recognize their position and say, yeah, that is what I believe. Right. And then he would say, in response to that, I say this. Right. And I think we're often so scared of, of, letting someone air a position that might not be correct in our mm-hmm. understanding that we don't make space for listening. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, that's, that's a criticism that I get actually fairly frequently. Um, you know, being a Catholic, um, and all the interactions that I have with non-Catholics, it's, it's fairly common for me to have other Catholics come on my page and say, you know, in essence that I should have corrected or I mm-hmm. should have taken this very uh, apologetic stance where um, I now have to tell you why uh, everything you just said is wrong or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so th- th- there, there is a sort of a, a fear uh, that just by that by listening um, without responding, that that is somehow uh, treacherous or traitorous or whatever. Um, but I think about um, here, I, I'm going to do, do 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 what you just did. This is attributed to Saint Augustine, though again, there's no proof that he ever actually said it. 
but um, but it often attributed to him, it says something like, uh, truth is like a lion. Mm-hmm. If you set it free, it will defend itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am convicted that the Catholic Church, the Catholic faith is the fullness of truth. And so I, I don't have that anxiety. I don't have a fear that if people hear something other than the Catholic faith, that they're, um, uh, that then the Catholic faith is somehow going to crumble because I think uh, that it can stand up to scrutiny. And I, I, I rest confident in that. For instance, you were well-trained mm-hmm. as a preacher. You, you went through several different layers of education mm-hmm. from a certain perspective mm-hmm. and it, and it, wasn't the intellect. It was walking into a church and experiencing the presence of Jesus in a way that you could not explain Right. that made the difference. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we often, because of our, maybe it's because of the society in which we live, we put so much stock in the intellect right. that we, we don't leave room for the incarnation, mm-hmm. whether that be the incarnation in the Eucharist or whether that be the incarnation in the body of Christ, the people yeah. of God. And that experience of not being talked over can do every bit as much as right understanding. Right. Yeah. You know, since, you know, we're talking about the solemnity of all saints and the influence of the saints and how, you know, all this influenced my life. There, there are two things that I think about in that regard. There's one a quote from a Cardinal Emmanuel uh, or Emmanuel Cardinal Suhar, where he said uh, something like, to be a witness is not to engage in propaganda, nor even in stirring people up. It is to be a living mystery. It is to live in such a way that your life would not make sense if God did not exist. Um, so in essence, uh, it's our lived life is the greatest witness that we have um, rather than our intellect. And intellect is always involved. It's never ex- entirely excluded. Um, but I sometimes say that uh, reason or rationality comes at the end of argument, not at the beginning. And uh, there's this little anecdote that I often share in relationship to this. Mortimer Adler, who was uh, involved in developing the great, uh, books. Uh, the yeah. great books of the Western world, yeah, he tells this story. I, I think he tells it in um, How to Read a Book. Uh, don't quote me on that. But um, he talks about in the early stages when they were developing these seminars and this sort of method of education that uh, he had these promising students together. And he said, uh, we're not going to proceed until I prove to you that God exists. And I'm going to use Thomas Aquinas proofs of the existence of God. And, uh, you know, very early on, about half the class folds because uh, Aquinas is brilliant. Um, and uh, but some there are some who hold out and he keeps going. And then eventually some others fall and um, maybe just because of boredom and they're just ready to move on. So we say, oh, yeah, wait, right. let's just go. You know, but there was one guy that just you know, uh, out of intellectual honesty, he's like, look, I don't buy this. I don't believe this. And I'm, I'm not going to tell you that I do, even if I want to move on, I don't believe that God exists. And Mortimer Adler dug in. He said, fine. I said, we're not moving on. Like, so it was now it was like a battle of wills. And, right. um, Adler's friend, I think it was Charles Van Dorn says, Hey, change things up a bit. You've been talking all about what Aquinas said. Why don't you tell them a little bit about Aquinas? And, Adler relents, and so he, you know, tells him about how young Aquinas was, and when he wrote this grand Summa uh, Theologica, and and for us, go ahead. Which the Summa is supposed to be 
the basics of theology. It's, It's the introduction. It's the summary of theology so that the, 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 beginner student can understand it and then you'll get to the real stuff later right. it's incredible and, and for us like it's already like many volumes um printed yeah. you know in a printing press but it, you know written it would have been taken like oh. bookcases huge and, and and he writes it like it's not in order he writes different pieces at different times he's He's dictating to several different people. Um, he's doing most of his quotations from memory, scripture, and 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 philosophers like Aristotle and uh, and the the Muslim uh, Aristotelian philosopher uh, uh, Avicenna, um, and he's quoting uh, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and just all this stuff from memory. It's just he's brilliant. It's incredible what he's doing. And uh, and at the end of it, the student that was holding out, he said, "Okay, I believe in God. Let's move on." And Adler was kind of frustrated by this because he was like, all this time, tell, you know, trying to convince you that God exists and, and 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 you didn't buy it. And then I just tell you a little anecdote about who Thomas Aquinas was and 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 now you believe in God. What 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 happened? And the student supposedly said to him, Thomas Aquinas could not explain God to me, but only God could explain Thomas Aquinas. Hmm. In essence, if Thomas Aquinas exists, there must be a God. Because what yeah. he accomplished is beyond, in this student's thinking, you know, is beyond the ability of a man who is not inspired by something greater than he is. Yeah. Um, so it was the life, you know, of Aquinas um, related to his reason and rationality, right? But it was, but it was who he was and how he embodied life with God um, that that so impressed this young man. Uh, not his arguments. And it's going to be the same for us. We have to live a life that is only explainable by the presence of God. We're talking today with Matthew Benfield. You can find him over on TikTok. The username there is Theologia Vittorium. We'll put a link to it over on our social media. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to be on air with us today. Thanks so much. If you missed any part of my conversation with Matthew Benfield, or you want to go back and listen to it again, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you can't get enough, I've got good news because there is more. Each and every week, we record an extra segment with our guest that we make available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air. And in gratitude, we like to give them a little bit extra, a couple of extra questions with the guest. And this week is a great extra segment. If you've been considering it, this might be the week to join, be a part of that community and get that extra content there. Just go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link there in the menu to learn more. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. We've been talking about the church fathers here and what what a difference that made, what a difference it made for him approaching Scripture in that way. And there's no better way to do that than to read Scripture with the whole church. And Verbum helps you do that by putting the magisterium and linking it to the catechism of the fathers and doctors of the church, biblical commentaries, original language research, and so much more. There's a new version out, brand new. It's Verbum 10. You can find the library that fits your way of studying and helps you grow in the faith. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 5, this is the Beatitudes as Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And for us, as we're looking at our lives, whether that be how we interact on social media or how we live the the course of our, our day, our routine, this is the measure by which we can see 
am I living a life faithful as a disciple of Jesus Christ? And he says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. That reading again comes, these are the words of Jesus coming from Matthew 5, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And this really is kind of the, the measuring stick. Am I living? Am I behaving? Am I moving through my day as a disciple of, of Jesus Christ? Am I poor in spirit? Am I meek? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Am I merciful? Am I pure in heart? Do I seek to be a peacemaker? These are the things that we should look at more than anything else to say, am I living in a way that would receive the blessing from the Lord. Our reading from Church History today comes from homilies on Genesis. This is from John Chrysostom. We're reading the translation from the Catholic University of America Press, the CUA Fathers of the Church series. And this is out of homily 34. Yesterday, dearly beloved, you learned of the patriarch's extraordinary humility. You saw the remarkable degree of his restraint. It was no slight thing for the old man who had performed so many good deeds and enjoyed so much favor from the Lord of all to display towards the younger man, his nephew, such a quality of esteem as to cede to him pride of place and take second best and put up with everything for the sake of heading off conflict and eliminating the grounds of rivalry. Let us all be anxious to emulate this conduct, never threatening our relatives nor entertaining grandiose notions. Let us give evidence of deep humility by deferring to them. Let us rather make it our concern to take second place in behavior and speech, not even reacting against those who do us wrong, even if they happen to be beneficiaries of ours. This, after all, is the most excellent philosophy. Nor even being provoked by their arrogance, even if those feuding with us are our inferiors. Rather, let us allay their ill-filling by restraint and meekness. Nothing you see is more efficacious than this. Nothing is more potent. This brings our soul into lasting tranquility, as if by causing it to find haven in port, and proving to be for us the basis of complete repose. Hence Christ too delivered from that divine instruction in the words, Learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Nothing you see brings the soul into repose and great peace to such an extent as meekness and humility. 
this would prove to be for its possessor more valuable than any diadem. This would be more to one's credit than any notoriety or glory. I mean, what could be more desirable than being freed from the threat of conflict arising within one's own person? I mean, even if we enjoy peace and respect many times over outwardly, while alarm and disturbance arise within us from the tumult of our thinking, no benefit comes to us from peace on the outside, just as nothing would be more pitiable than a city suffering the treason of the citizens within its walls, no matter if you fortified it with countless ramparts and fortifications. Accordingly, I beseech you, let us make this our special concern to keep our soul undisturbed, to bring it to a state of peace, to free it from all alarm so that we ourselves may enjoy complete repose and may be gentle with our acquaintances. This, in fact, is a particular mark of the person endowed with reason, mildness, restraint, gentleness, humility, tranquility, not being pulled and tugged like a slave either by anger or by other passions but through the use of reason prevailing over interior impulses, preserving our natural nobility and not falling victim to the frenzy of brute beasts through indifference. To learn the power of gentleness and restraint and how virtue alone suffices to render the person who practices it devotedly worthy of those ineffable encomiums. Listen to the eulogy bestowed to the blessed Moses on that account and the crown awarded to him for that reason. Moses was the mildest of all people on earth, Scripture says. Do you see the greatness of the encomium, which conferred on him equality of esteem with the whole human race, or rather, gave him precedence over all mankind? Again, Scripture says about David, Be mindful, Lord of David, and all his meekness. On that score, too, the patriarch won much greater favor from on high, and by exerting himself from his own resources, he was accorded greater blessings from the loving Lord. You will come to realize this when we propose to you the sequel to yesterday's words and unfold for your good selves the passage read at the outset. You see, when Abram gave evidence of great restraint in giving pride of place to Lot, and yielded to him the right of choice, he willingly chose second place for the sake of avoiding all rivalry. Hence, notice the extent of the reward he immediately enjoys from God, and the way he regales the patriarch with recompense in excess of his considerable wealth. This, you see, is what our Lord is like. When he sees us exerting ourselves, even slightly of our own accord, he plies us with generous rewards on his account and demonstrates such great generosity as to surpass by a great margin what has been done by us. That reading comes from a letter from a homily on Genesis by St. John Chrysostom. <clears throat> and this is our challenge and our task. We heard this in Mass just last week, that the one who humbles himself will be exalted, and the one who exalts himself will be humbled. Let us humble ourselves and find through that humility the great graces of God that he bestows on us all.
That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show was brought to you by Anil Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and join their numbers. And until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices.